Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And yes, indeed, uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Shattered Lives. It is our goal to make a difference, and I'm very proud to um, announce that we have a very special show that has been in the planning for many weeks. It's it's one of our one of uh, the topics of uh, Delilah and I that is very close to our ha- our heart because we both work very closely with missing persons and. I have to say that as a as a um, resident of, of Connecticut, this is a this is a topic um, and a and a series of cases that I've grown up with, kind of in the fabric of my growing up. And so, um, I I we're, we're going to welcome a multitude of uh, different guests this evening, and uh, both from the law enforcement and family perspective. Um, but before I bring them in, in just a minute. Just wanted to um, say thank you very much to uh, my co-host, Delilah uh, Jones. It's always a, an honor and a privilege to have you here working with me every single week. You take time out of your busy schedule, and you you do so many other things for me. So thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I so appreciate what you do, and you're such a pro, and thank you for being here for this very important show. Well, you're quite welcome. <laughs> And I think, you know, listeners are going to be very impressed with this show. I know you've worked very, very hard to pull this all together. And, you know, we've got several guests uh, waiting in the wings. And I think we might as well just get on with it because we've got a lot of uh, a lot of area to cover. And rather than me chit-chat with you, let's bring them on. Right. Um, it, I just might say, as uh, uh, very abbreviated, the the importance of this show. I, I want to just say two two short things. Is that um, not not only in doing shows like this, does this perhaps give hope to other family families who are listening? Um, and we're going to try to create an atmosphere of trust so that the public gets to know what these cases are about. And and uh, so that they may feel comfortable comfortable offering any and all information, however insignificant they may may feel, because if if people have not seen from our previous posts, some of these cases are 40 years old or older, and that's quite a long time. And um, you know, the, and the the other thing is we want to stress how very dedicated um, these law enforcement people are. It's very difficult to solve these crimes and, and the, the number of hours and, and days and weeks and months they put in, and uh, so we get to have a bird's eye view. So thank you, thank you, all the members of the Talent County Cold Case Squad, which is um, an area of eastern Connecticut, and I also want to thank two family members. So by way of introduction, just very briefly, I'll tell you that the main person I've been dealing with is Dan Cargill, and uh, he was a former Connecticut State Trooper, um, and he he is uh, a cold case analyst right now, but he also uh, we also have uh, Bill, Bill Meyer, who was on the initial 2014 cold case um, unit, uh, who is going to be with us, and we have Janelle uh, Candelaria, who is also a member of the team and an analyst. Uh, and we also have, um, as family members, of Janice Pocket, who is the youngest, um, youngest young girl to go missing, is Mary Engelbrecht, her younger sister. And then we have April, uh, April Coletti. Uh, Folletti, um, excuse my pronunciation, who is the younger sister of Lisa White. And we will also definitely be speaking about uh, Deborah Spickler, 
who is the third missing girl who is um, who is uh, being investigated in this squad. So, again, thank you so much, everyone. And, um, Deanne, thank you for helping me pull this together. Um, I... I think the best way for us to do this is to have um, somewhat what of an overview with regard to these cases. And my understanding, uh, Lieutenant Meyer, Bill Meyer, um, was an initial person dealing with uh, these cases. So, Bill, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Would you like to give us an overview? Yes, thank you for having us. Uh, uh, good afternoon. I'm Lieutenant Bill Meyer from the Vernon Police Department. Uh, I serve as the department spokesman and also uh, recently as a member of the detective division and someone who worked on this cold case squad uh, from its inception in 2014. Uh, the Vernon Police began investigating these cases uh, back in 1968. Uh, we received the report. Uh, on July 24, 1968, uh, that Deborah Spickler, who was age 14 at the time, uh, had gone missing. Uh, now, Deborah was not from Vernon. Uh, she was actually uh, from another part of the state, uh, the Mystic area down near the shore. And she was up here uh, in Vernon uh, visiting her relatives, uh, one of her father's cousins uh, who lived on Hartford Turnpike. Uh, she went up with uh, this cousin uh, to go and visit one of the cousin's friends in Vernon, which happened to be near Henry Park. And Henry Park is a uh, uh, kind of a central park in Vernon, uh, has a pretty prominent tower. Uh, it's actually featured on the town logo, uh, and it's off of South Street in Vernon. So they walked up to this park, uh, and, and, and when they learned that this girl was not home, the friend uh, the two split up. So Deborah split up from her cousin, and they weren't searching around to see uh, where the friend was. Uh, Deborah looked in the park, and Linda went out to a nearby store. Uh, Linda came back about 15 minutes later, and, and Deborah had vanished, uh, and, and no one's seen her since. Uh, we began the investigation you know, immediately after getting the report. Uh, it's been uh, an active case since 1968. Um, but then, uh, a few years later, uh, in 1973, uh, in neighboring Talland, uh, just, just a couple miles from Vernon, uh, another girl went missing. Uh, and this was seven-year-old Janice Pocket. Uh, she left her house on Anthony Road in Talland about 3 o'clock, uh, July 26, 1973. Uh, and she went back out uh, with her bicycle to retrieve a butterfly she left under a rock on a dirt road. Uh, later, her bicycle was found on the side of Road Road, which is nearby where she lived, uh, but, but Janice has never been seen uh, as well. And this case was handled uh, by the Connecticut State Police because uh, the Connecticut State Police cover the Talent area and, and they have the jurisdiction uh, for, uh, you know, for that town. Uh, and we've, we've been in touch uh, with them throughout the years. Uh, we've worked on these cases jointly, sharing information. Um, and then finally, the third uh, missing person uh, was Lisa Joy White, uh, and she went missing in 1974. Uh, Lisa was uh, 13 when she went missing. Uh, she lived here with her family uh, on Regan Road in Vernon. Uh, she uh, was out visiting a friend uh, on Prospect Street in Rockville, and uh, started to, to walk away from the friend's house uh, and, and has never been seen since. Um, Lisa uh, initially was thought of as a runaway uh, back in, in 1973 when she went missing. Um, she had uh, previously run away before. Uh, she had been referred uh, to the juvenile court of, uh, before. Um, you know, she was having uh, kind of the typical teenage um, mother challenges, you know, where she was uh, getting into some, some kind of fights and arguments with her mother. Um, Lisa had the, the night before she went missing, um, was up in nearby Massachusetts. Uh, you know, Vernon is, is very close to Massachusetts, probably maybe only 20 miles from, from Massachusetts. And uh, she had gone up there with some, some older boys up to Hamden, Mass, uh, to and go up and party. Uh, she was actually caught by the Hamden Mass uh, Police Department uh, and brought back to, to Vernon with another friend. 
the uh, next day um, when Lisa's mother woke up uh, on Friday, November 1st, uh, she found that Lisa wasn't home, and, and Lisa hadn't taken any belongings with her, um, but did leave a note for her mom. Um, the mother had, uh, you know, kind of called around, uh, and, and a little bit later that night, uh, Lisa was up on Prospect Street in downtown Rockville, and, and Vernon's an old mill town, and, and Rockville is uh, kind of the downtown uh, center of Vernon. And uh, she... Um, she left that house uh, on Prospect Street at about 7.30 or 8.30 at night, uh, and this was on um, November 1st, 1974, that, that she was last seen. Um, her friend saw her uh, walking down uh, towards the center of Rockville, and uh, like I said, Lisa's uh, never been seen again. Uh, the Police got the report pretty quickly, within a few hours of when Lisa was last seen. Uh, Mrs. White, uh, Judy White, uh, called us uh, in the middle of the night, about 2 o'clock in the morning on November 2nd, and made the report uh, to the police that she was missing. Uh, and had asked the police to check around some addresses, including the address of uh, some of these boys that, that Lisa had been hanging around uh, in Manchester. Uh, Vernon police started the investigation, again, kind of treating it uh, like a runaway because of all the information we had at that time uh, seemed to indicate that this was a runaway. Uh, you know, the notes, uh, the previous uh, problems, you know, mother-daughter type problems, uh, and the fact that she had run away in the past. Uh, the police, over the course of the next uh, several months, it started to kind of ramp up the investigation and... Uh, that investigation uh, still continues today, and we can talk a little bit more about, you know, where the investigation's gone over the years, but this is really just kind of a brief overview of, you know, when right. each of the girls were missing and, um, you know, those initial well, circumstances. Yeah, thank you for that. It kind of paints the picture. So uh, just to recap a little bit, the, the span of time from, from when initially um, – uh, it was 1968 to 1974, encompassing these these three girls. Is that correct? Yes, it was, it was over those uh, between those years. So 1968, uh, 1973, and then 1974. Right. Uh, the and can you can you tell us, uh, Dan or Janelle or Bill, what would be the difference these days? Um, uh, I know there's many differences in terms of how how missing persons are handled it's it's, it's a it's a wealth of uh, of differences in terms of protocol but when when you were you were um termed deemed a runaway back in the late 60s and the early 70s how typically was was the case um initiated in terms of the number of hours and what was done as compared to the initial what you do today well, let me just first off, first off uh, point out that the uh, 1960s and 70s, um, it was very typical to have young uh, children run away. It was actually a, a little bit of a phenomenon that uh, it was a kids left for various reasons. Um, now I know uh, Lisa, although technically um, had never uh, run away before, um, there were some concerns and some. Uh, general, uh, I don't want to call them threats, but general concerns um, in the family uh, prior to her being missing. Um, right. So just in those time frames, running away was a common and, and normal occurrence for teenagers. And some of them traveled, and remember this, are much different times than they are today. Uh, we didn't have cell phones and um, communication devices that allowed uh, instant communication. So kids would leave for days on end, uh, without having communication with the parents. In fact, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, right. kids left the house in the morning and didn't come home until night. Um, and that was just the typical uh, behavior of children back then. Um, so as far as what occurs back then uh, in the 60s and 70s and how police responded to uh, runaway cases or just missing person cases uh, is completely different than we do today. We have um, processes and standards and protocols that we must follow and actual uh, state statutes that uh, we must adhere to. 
um, for the timely investigation and entrance into NCIC, the National uh, Crime, the NCIC, which is the uh, National Computer Database for Law Enforcement. Right. Um, Was it the standard 72, uh, 72 hours back then? No, that's a big misnomer. It was, that's a uh, misnomer, yeah. Yeah, that's a television thing that you have to wait 24 hours um, before you report right. anybody. And I think that was because of the uh, the culture back then where so many people left for the day or, or left for a period of time, but then ended up coming back uh, the next day. Um, and sure. so I, I don't know if that's a movie uh, situation where they just said, that sounds good, wait 24 hours. Yeah, and they keep reporting that. Very good. Well, you know, this might be a good juncture in which to introduce the um, family members because um, it's a whole different perspective. Law enforcement sees the victims in one way, and they have a job to do, but yet, and I know um, we just had the 35th anniversary of, of, of my dad's murder, uh, April 17th. So, you know, um, we thank God it was solved fairly quickly, but Again, time passes on and, and things change and maybe our perspective, perspective changes over time. Um, I'm wondering, Mary or April, would you like to come in here and perhaps um, tell us uh, what, you, what you would like to say about your sisters that perhaps is different than the law enforcement perspective? Either um, one of you. Hi, Donna. It's Mary. Hi, Mary. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> you know, I'm great to have you. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, I was very young when, when Janice went missing. I was only six years old. And I can remember some things very clear from that day and the days following. But I think there's more stuff I don't remember that went on around that time. Um, I think at that age, I really didn't know what was going on, it, it, to be honest with you, and my parents were very protective and didn't give me a lot of information. Um, uh, I remember that when I saw my grandfather crying that I knew, wow, this is something very serious because, you know, my grandfather doesn't cry. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. I think at that point I really knew, wow, you know, what happened to Janice? Um, I remember there being a lot of people at my house and I remember also being in bed at night and being very scared that some monster was going to come and get me because I just didn't understand. She was there and then she wasn't there. Of course. So I think um, just growing up my whole life pretty much not knowing what happened to her was really a scary thing. And um, I'm just well, right now when so did happy you actually that start being to done. the pieces together or when did your – your your parents start to inform you. I know you were six at the time, the younger sister, but when did they reveal that, you know, it wasn't the boogeyman kind of thing and this is really what happened? Um, you know, I think I remember them just saying we don't know what happened to her and, you know, that the police are working hard to find where she is. And um, But I did, you know, kind of know that somebody took her and we don't know where. Um, I think at the very beginning, the police thought that she had maybe wandered into the woods and got lost. And I think that was the first thing that they did was there was a huge search. And once, you know, nothing was found and no sign of her in the area that they started to think, well, this must be some foul play involved. Right. But, well, over um, over the years, then, did you become more curious or more involved? Because let's face it, not all family members are as equally invested in these cases as others for many different reasons. How did you become, you know, involved and 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 kept touch over all of these years? Well, you know, to be honest, my parents didn't talk about my sister a lot, and I think it was their way of protecting me. And mm. so I didn't know a lot of information about what was going on. And growing up, I really felt that I was 
known as the kid, the sister of the missing girl. And it was, I, to be honest with you, I was miserable. I hated that. And I, I didn't like, you know, growing up that way. It was terrible. And, you know, you go into a supermarket and there's your sister's picture and <laughs> everywhere you go. And I didn't want people to know that she was my sister. And I feel terrible about that now as an adult. But after I got older, um, I, and became a parent and have my own children, I realized what a horrible thing my parents went through. I don't know how they got through it. Um, and my mission now is just to try to find her and bring her home. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what was she like in terms of personality and, and you know, what, what, what did she, besides catching butterflies, what did she like to do just to kind of fill in a little bit? Yes, you know, we were both very much into the butterflies and the bugs and <laughs> catching fireflies in the backyard. We did a lot of that. My mom used to take us hiking through the woods. We lived in a very wooded area. We loved that. We'd have picnics in the woods. Um, I remember that summer we were doing swimming lessons together, and she was definitely the big sister. She was in charge. She was bossy, and I usually did whatever she told me. So, <laughs> But we used to have fun. We you know, sneak into each other's bedrooms at night and talk and stuff. And and it was really horrible to have her not there suddenly. Uh, of course. It's just how did they treat, once people found out that you were the sister of the missing girl, you know, that everyone in Connecticut was talking about, how did they treat you? You know, people didn't. When I was like when I fart, when I started school that fall, I was terrified because I'd never re- rode the school bus without my sister, and I didn't want to go. <laughs> and I remember very clearly some kid saying stuff to me about it, and it just made me feel horrible. And I, and but as I got older, you know, kids didn't really mention it to me so much. Um, mm-hmm. But I always had the you know I always knew in the back of my mind that they knew who I was, you know. But um, I didn't start really talking about it and being an advocate until I was an adult. And and how do you, what's your stance about it now and how do you feel? Do you feel hopeful, particularly with with this team that's behind you now? You know, I feel very hopeful. And I'm telling you, this is the most hopeful I've felt in years since they formed this task force. And I I really think this case and Lisa's case and Debbie's case can be solved. I have hope for that. Um, this is the best I've felt in years. Oh, I mean, I've always been in touch for many years with the state police, and they've been wonderful in keeping me up to date. And um, But this is the best I've felt in years. Any particular reason why, or is it just you have a feeling that it, it's solvable? You know, I love the fact that there's Dan Cargill now, and he works exclusively on this. I mean, always before, I know the state police that had our cases, they were all wonderful, but they also had to work on current cases. So, you know, they would work on Janice's case when they, when they could. Now right. it's just we have people that are exclusively doing this, and I think that's fantastic. I, I do too. Uh, let's let's get April in here. April, hello, good evening. How are you? How are you? I'm just fine, thank you, and thank you so much for being with us. I I really want you to be able to share with us about about your sister and 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 your memories and what what you you feel um, is most important um, for for the case right now. Um, just like Mary said. For once, um, I feel very hopeful that we'll be able to bring our sisters home and put them to rest with our parents. Um, we're their advocates. We're their, we're their final voice, quite honestly. And um, like Mary said, um, Detective Cargill has, has gone all the way back from the very beginning and is in constant contact with us with any information um, or even no information, just, you know, letting us know that um, he's, he's on top of things. And, and like Mary said, it's, um, it's nice to feel hopeful. Um, 
in in the fact that we see I don't want to say an end or closure, but just something in the future that can kind of give us some peace in in well, the tragedies that we've gone through. What about through. the word re- resolution? We like to use that um, that word because it's it, it's sort of a neutral word. It doesn't you know connote closure, but yet uh, you know it, it it brings you know the end to that particular chapter, perhaps and. You know, it, it's so important to, that that you feel confident in these people. And what what is it about the investigation that that makes you 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 hopeful or th- this particular combination of of people? Anything in particular? Um, the dedication, the um, the information, the constant contact. Uh, you don't feel like you're you're left in the dark. You know, there's, yep. there's constant communication. And um, like uh, Mary, we've both lost our parents. So we're our sister's voices at this point. We're their advocates. And I don't mm-hmm. really want to say resolution. Um, it'd be nice to, um, I mean, it, it'd be a dream come true to bring our sisters home to lay at peace with our parents. Um, as far as resolution, well, well, we need to know what happened and who did this. That would be a resolution in my eyes. But bringing right. our sisters home would be um, more more than we've ever hoped for. But we can see in the future um, as a possibility, and, and that brings um, some some hope into. Uh, where we're very hopeless. Dear right. You know, and who knows, maybe one of these days I'd love to be able to get together with with the two of you. Maybe we can have lunch or something. That would be great. But, um, you know, I, I'm just so honored to have you. I wanted to, to ask or, or to make sure that the audience knew, um, Dan, perhaps Dan or Janelle can, can take this. Um, people may be having in the back of their mind because of the CSI effect and all of that is like, oh, well, they just need to go back and analyze the evidence and there, there perhaps is going to be some DNA. Can you tell us about the status and what, what you shared with me the other day that, that makes this such a challenge? I think um, the biggest challenge is that there is no evidence in any of these cases. And is this Janelle? Right. Janelle, this is you, right? Yes, this is Janelle. Okay, hi. Okay. I'm sorry, say that again? Um, There is no evidence in any of these cases, so that is the biggest um, difficulty we have um, right now. Now, why is that? There's a bicycle. Tell us about the bicycle. And and Donna, just uh, as Janelle was saying, there is no physical evidence. We do have uh, Janice's bicycle. Um, but unfortunately, it is not in a state that it can be processed for uh, any evidence. Um, so even with today's technologies, it, unfortunately, they don't apply in that particular case. And that's what makes these cases so difficult. Um, but the, the squad uh, has embraced um, this challenge and is uh, looking at every lead and every possibility um, of these cases. hmm well, is it, is it true that uh, I was reading in some of the articles up uh, just within the past year you've had something like 95 tips, and is it for, for Janice's case alone you have, what, 30 file boxes of documents to review and go through line by line kind of thing? And that's correct. And actually I'll let Janelle, um, because she is really taking the lead on um, going through all of Janice Pocket's uh, reports and all of the files. Um, wow, what, what's that like, Janelle? I mean, we we've seen that on some shows, and is it could it be that there are hidden clues right there in some old dust, musty, dusty report that nobody happened upon? Is that your job? Yep, my job is to go through the 30 banker boxes, and it's very voluminous. And what I'm doing right now is organizing all the reports and putting it in a systematic database that all the squad can access um, electronically, which has never been done before. So that they'll have 
any report at their fingertips, they'll be able to search it, and hopefully that'll help them um, in cross-referencing with these three cases. We don't know if they are connected, but maybe something will pop out um, that they're reading, and hopefully that could be the missing link that we're trying to find. Well, what, what would be a, a typical day? Would you be spending eight to ten hours just sitting at a desk reading and, and uh, copying or scanning? What's, what, what, are you, what are you looking for, inconsistencies or new details, or can you, can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, a typical day is about an eight-hour day. I go in, um, and I do. I, I, in addition to these cases, I also work on other cases. So unlike Dan, I don't, I can't devote um, five days a week to them, but the three days that I do have um, devoting to them, I am reading every report. I am utilizing um, timelines and different anal analytical um, standards to um, organize the case files better. Okay, and in doing so, something might pop up, right? Correct. Yep. Hopefully. And our our squad meets, so we discuss things, reports that we go over, and you know, I may say, "Hey, I found um, this report," and the other um, cases, the detectives working on them may have never heard that name, or maybe they have, and we just never knew that Vernon knew that information, and it ties in with Tallinn information. So, and Donna, um, yeah. we've mentioned. Uh, we've mentioned the squad a, a number of times, and I just want to make sure that uh, the listeners and yourself are, um, are aware of actually who is involved in this. Um, so the squad consists of uh, State's Attorney Matthew Gdansky from the Tallinn County State's Attorney's Office, Sergeant Forrest Ruddy from the Connecticut State Police, the Eastern District Major Crime Squad, uh, Detective Bob Given from uh, the Connecticut State Police as well, Eastern District Major Crime Squad, uh, Detective Charles Hicken, from the Vernon Police Department, Detective John Devenair from the Vernon uh, Police Department, uh, myself and Janelle. Um, Mary and April have said some very kind words uh, uh, regarding myself, but uh, truly uh, this is a team effort and none of this uh, is uh, capable um, without the team. And as Janelle mentioned, we do meet monthly and the information that is shared across agencies has been what has been key to getting as far as we have uh, in the investigations. Uh, and without going into specific details, I can tell you we have uncovered dozens of uh, leads, tips, um, and areas of uh, investigative efforts that we are applying uh, today to. So is it just a matter of taking all of those tips and prioritizing them and or organizing them in some way and then just going down the list one by one kind of thing? I, in, uh, in basic terms, I'll say yes. It is obviously much more complicated than that. We're yeah. dealing with information. We're dealing with statements. Uh, we're dealing with uh, actual physical sites. Um, so there are a number of factors that uh, come into play. So it's not just uh, yeah. checking off going one tip after the next. Sure. But let's talk about the I, – I did post um, last evening, I believe, um, uh, one of the um, – I don't want to say plea, but uh, encouraging the public to send in um, historical photographs for Deborah with regard to the summer of 1968. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And we can also mention – you know, mention the site if anybody from that summer had taken any photographs, and then the kinds of information that might be helpful from the public. However, and, you know, if you could give us some examples, maybe. Certainly. So, as part of our investigative efforts, um, we are looking for any photographs or video that was taken uh, during the summer of 1968 in and around Henry Park. Um, our hopes are that in those photographs or those videos, uh, there are pictures of maybe kids at the uh, ball field, um, maybe at the swimming pool. Uh, perhaps we're not interested in the specific targets of the photographs, but we're interested in the people that are in the background. 
um, and not only the people, but we're also interested in to see what the what Henry Park looked like back in 1968 in that summer. Um, and that would go a long way with uh, helping us um, in our investigative effort of that particular case. Okay. Would well, that are you? Are you a, go ahead, Delilah. I was. Um, yeah. They the histories that they may have, or do you feel like it was an abduction? Was there someone in the area through that period of time that uh, you know? But it points to, I know you don't have any physical evidence, however, and with all the reports and all the evidence that you do have, is there is there a working theory, and are you, are you able to talk about it? Um, we're not able to speak specifically about what we are working on. Um, I will tell you this, we are open and investigating to all possibilities, uh, whether or not this was a targeted um, abduction or these were three random acts by three individuals or whether they are all uh, combined as uh, one particular perpetrator. This is uh, uh, Bill Meyer. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's important to remember, too, you know, with these cases. I mean, the first case was, was 48 years ago. You know, like Dan had alluded to earlier, I mean, it was a different time. Uh, you know, people hitchhiked. Uh, parents, you know, didn't watch their kids as closely as they do now. I mean, it was right. common for kids to go out on their own, even when they were younger. I mean, they just, you know, people felt safer. Uh, and, you know, now I think parents, you know, keep such a close eye on their kids. And, you know, it's, it's just a different time. And it's important for people, I think, to understand it. It's something that the investigators, you know, have had to uh, keep in mind when we go back and review these reports. And, you know, Janelle and Dan have done a phenomenal job with this. I mean, we have uh, reports back to 1968, you know, the Vernon police uh, with uh, Lisa's case and Deborah's case. We have a lot of reports. Uh, the state police have worked on all three cases, uh, and, and they've generated a tremendous number of reports. And then the FBI has also worked on all three of these cases, and they've generated a lot of reports as well. And, you know, like I said, putting all these pieces together, uh, but keeping in mind that historical context, you know, with the, with the photographs and the, the, the type of society that we had uh, almost right. 50 years ago, uh, because this investigation has passed through generations of police officers. Um, right. You know, many of the officers working on the case today weren't even born back in 1968 when, when Deborah first went missing. So, um, you know, it's... It is, it is different, and I understand that. Um, Bill, maybe if you want to take this, this question, I, I think, you know, Delilah's question was was a very good one in that just by virtue of the fact that you have somehow loosely tied these cases together and you have formed a squad, what is it that, is there some kind of criteria in, in when you make the transition from, you know, looking at these cases individually and then you decide, well, it would be, I'm not sure what the difference is in between a special task force or a squad when you decide to formulate that versus working on them individually? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest challenge here obviously is the time, you know, the amount of time that's elapsed uh, and the fact that we don't have, you know, a, uh, any evidence, you know, a scene per se. I mean, the only piece of evidence, uh, like Jill said, is this, this bicycle, um, you know, over the years, uh, even back uh, in, in the mid-70s, uh, investigators were exploring the possibility that these three cases were related. I mean, that's always been um, a major theory. However, it's not the only theory. You know, like Dan said, I mean, uh, they, the investigations have been done separately and also together and by three agencies, you know, like I just said. So uh, as far as investigators go, um, you know, the more information you have uh, sometimes can be beneficial, but at the same time, uh, it can be overwhelming. You know, and that's really the challenge is just trying to put this information together uh, and, and see if there's some kind of hidden gem inside those reports that, that would help us today. Because as it's been widely reported, there have been through a number of suspects, you know, over the years, and, and this has all been played out in the media. Uh, you know, of, of many different theories and, and investigative routes that, that investigators have gone down in the 70s, the 80s. Um, but, you know, working together, uh, bringing uh, modern techniques and 
uh, having this team has, has really been beneficial to take a fresh look. Uh, yeah, I, I can I can imagine that you know this team approach must it must be you know be a lot more efficient. Um, things like in just thinking about this and the fact that there was no real physical evidence um, environmentally, and since they're all in Challen County, I mean I'm sure you use like uh, topography and Google Maps and uh, of the of the geographic area and uh, search and rescue teams and all of that. Can you give us a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch, any one of you, in terms of the kinds of things that have been done historically? I'm not asking you to tell me what you're doing right now, but what are the different kinds of techniques and approaches that you have used up until this point in, in general? Well, speaking specifically about the topography and the, uh, the lay of the land, so to speak, um, back in the 1968 to 74 timeframe, um, I've been able to research through the state library the aerial photos um, of the area from that time period. Uh, the Vernon Historical Society uh, did a phenomenal job doing some research for us um, in gathering photographs from Henry Park. Um, and that actually lends to us exactly what the park looked like back then and what areas were accessible and what areas were not accessible. Um, so using the, uh, the pictures from back then um, is certainly aiding our investigation now because certainly there are entire developments that have been built um, where there were no developments before and where uh, dirt roads were are no longer dirt. They're paved with uh, houses. Um, lining both sides. Wow. So does that mean? Does that um, mean if you want to do excavation, for example, you, there's there's so many different um, layers of bureaucracy to go through to be able to, like, say, well, let's try to dig up this area or whatever. No, not at all. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, we have indeed uh, searched a number of private residents, um, the properties of private residents. Um, and they have been more than uh, agreeable and allowing us access. Um, so the support that we are getting from the community has been tremendous. Um, and certainly we, uh, we are respectful of their property and put it back the best way we can, the way we found it. Um, but uh, there, there's not much of a bureaucracy. We are the, the squad and we make the decisions. And as long as we have consent uh, from the homeowners, um, they've allowed us to do that. Yeah. Well, in, in these kinds of cases, are there certain kinds of evidence that you could predict that might be more more uh, helpful or uh, than others? Or um, you know, I'm I'm just trying to to think of whether or not it be a, a piece of of uh, inconsistency in documentation, or suddenly some kind of witness comes forward or or your video. Um, in working these cases with other families, is are there certain kinds of evidence that tend to bear more fruit, so to speak? Well, I'll tell you that uh, we we had mentioned before that we get tips on a regular basis, and some of those tips are actually uh, people coming forward and for the very first time in their entire lives telling us about an incident that occurred in the early 70s, um, whether it was uh, being uh, abducted themselves and being transported to a, a remote location and being um, assaulted, um, to actual people who were picking up hitchhikers um, and the, the, the people now calling ahead and saying, I was picked up by uh, a man uh, in a particular type of vehicle and taken in a particular location. So those stories are uh, what we are obviously interested in as well as any other evidence. Um, but the stories tell us uh, or paint a, a better picture or a better understanding of the times um, back then. Uh, and I'll just add that we talked about that uh, people thought the areas were much safer back then. Um, but based upon all of the investigative efforts and reports and the people I will say hundreds of people who have called in to share their stories um, with us. Uh, the 1970s was a much dangerous 
place than it is today. Um, it occurred on a regular basis. Uh, people were picked up either hitchhiking and assaulted. Um, there were a number of people who uh, would be exposing themselves um, in various locations throughout Holland and Vernon. Um, so it's not just a, uh, a local, it was a, a time frame um, where this was rampant, but there was not the same communication um, and people didn't report it, frankly. Absolutely. You know, what it makes me think of in Delilah, perhaps you remember from a couple of years ago or two or three or more years ago, we had Michael Dooling on uh, who wrote uh, 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 Clueless in Connecticut, who historically linked um, three cases from like the 1940s up into the early 60s, and that was very, very interesting. And I believe the same type of culture that you're talking about. So I don't know, who knows, perhaps you've been speaking with Michael Dooling, but if you haven't, maybe you should. Because um, he, he really did a lot of research on those three cases in New England. And, um, but, you know, I wanted to ask, uh, I wanted to, to ask April and Mary, um, I know that, you know, you're grown up now and you have families of your own and, you know, this is part of your lives, but how, um, how involved are you? Are, are you looking when time permits to actually sort of like volunteer with the squad or, or try to, um, you know, do something on your own to, um, you know, sort of investigate a, a piece of these cases? Or are you sort of uh, just being a cheerleader in the background and that's where you, you feel your place is? Either one of you. Um, well, you know, I think I've been trying to do a lot of promotion and just keep my sister's face in the media. I've um, had a Facebook page for her for many years that has over 2,200 followers, and I do get, believe it or not, a lot of people sending me messages there with tips, which I, of course, pass right on to the uh, cold case squad. So uh -huh. I do get information that way. Um, Would you like I, to give the, the Facebook address? Uh, you know, I don't know the exact address. I do know if you go on Facebook and if you type in Janice Pocket missing since 19, since July 26, 1973, it would come up. Okay. So, um, if people want to go there, oh, that's, I would love that's people great. to go there. Yes, and just uh -huh. like the page, and um, I also use that page to bring attention to any missing adult child case in all throughout the country. So anything to get, you know, the information out there. I think that's one wonderful thing about nowadays. We have this, the Internet and media more and can get these things out there, whereas back in 1973 it wasn't so easy. There was no Amber Alerts back then and things like that. So, um, right. No, that's I, great. Uh, so I just, that's, that's my big role now is just keeping my sister's name out there. There was a a memorial bench um, that was dedicated in Tolland on Rose Road right near where she disappeared. It's in Cross Farms Recreational Complex. Um, that was that was done during uh, her 40th the 40th anniversary of her missing back in 19 19 sorry back in 2013. And uh -huh. uh, Cross Farm Recreational Complex on Rose Road in Tolland. It's a beautiful bench um, and. Yeah, we released butterflies and had a wonderful dedication ceremony. So that's another place that people would like to visit. And I know there's also a beautiful memorial for Lisa if April wants to talk about that in Telkit Park. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Yeah, if people would, are there pictures of it on on Facebook to see the bench and whatnot? Yeah, there's several pictures of it on Janice's Facebook page. Great. So, yeah. April, what what is it that I, I know you're kind of busy as a, a dance instructor, right? Yes. Uh, but what is it? What is it that you do in, um, in terms of your your uh, current contribution? Well, um, 
My mother recently passed away um, almost four years ago, and she was kind of in charge. And like Mary had said before, she did her best to shield any information um, just to be protective. And um, she was basically Lisa's voice. And uh, since she's um, passed, I kind of took on um, being Lisa's, Lisa's voice. An advocate, and um, on November 1st um, of 2014, we made a memorial. It was actually a, a big boulder that my mother had um, specifically picked out for the front of my studio on the landscaping, and um, it was engraved with uh, the boulder, Lisa's picture, and uh, her date of um, disappearance, and. Um, with the words gone but not forgotten. Uh-huh. And that, that sits at Talca Park, and uh, it's at the corner of Prospect Street and Elm Street in Rockville, which is um, a stone's throw away from where she was last seen. Okay. Uh, that's, that's great. Are there, are there, is there also um, something online with regards with regard to your sister, like a Facebook page or a website or anything? There is. There is. It's uh, Lisa White missing since 1974. And that's a Facebook page if we look it up? Yes, it is. It was set up by uh, Detective John Devonier right after uh, my sister's 40th memorial. Um, and, again, like Mary said, you know, any information, any likes, any Anything, um, whether it be cases past, um, new cases, information, even if somebody remembers something just, you know, from 40 years ago, a name or a face or, you know, seeing her, somebody who looks like her, whatever information anybody can provide to all of our sisters' um, cases is is so welcome and so appreciated. So just please keep that in mind, that it, right. it's Lisa White and Janice Pocket. You know, wow. perspective, I mean, we've been working closely with the family, you know, since the initial reports, and I know that um, Lisa's mom, Judy, I mean, just kept extensive records and, you know, scrapbooks and, and things that were very helpful to the investigators, you know, and she worked very, very closely with us through the years. Um, and like I said, April now has continued on that work and, you know, keeping these cases alive. And, you know, it's been a pleasure working with them, unfortunately, in these unfortunate circumstances, but towards a common goal of figuring out what happened uh, and, and bringing some, some closure to these cases. But, you know, I think an important message to get out there is uh, the, the message that we're looking at the possibility these cases may be um, connected. I mean, they happened in a small geographic area. Um, the girls were of, of similar age. Uh, however, uh, we're also looking at a, at a broader reach, you know, the possibility that um, somewhere out there that there may be other cases connected to this, you know, somewhere uh, across the country. And, you know, we're hoping by reaching a wider audience that, you know, maybe someone has some information, maybe someone listening um, uh, knows something that maybe sounds familiar, like something that happened um, to them or about a case that they're familiar with in another part of the country. And, you know, we'd yeah, like to absolutely. hear from them as well. You know, we'd you like to get to, that information. Yeah, you have to be open-ended about it. Are you working closely with the Massachusetts police as well? Because wasn't Lisa going up there? Is that right? She had been up there the night before. Um, and we have been working with the Massachusetts State Police um, and the local police in Massachusetts on a number of occasions um, where the uh, circumstances dictated. Um, I do just want to throw out a couple of quick things before uh, time gets too far gone. Right. We've got about five minutes or so. So with um, reaching out to anybody uh, with information, I have uh, two, tip, um, two tip ways to uh, send in a tip. One yes, by please. phone. The telephone number for uh, an anonymous tip, or certainly you could leave your name and number, is 860-870-3228. I'll say that again. The tip line is 
and that goes okay. directly to uh, my office. Or you can also email a tip to dcj.tollandcounty, all one word, dot coldcase, all one word, at ct.gov. So again, the first three letters are DCJ, as in uh, David Charles John Tollincounty dot coldcase at ct.gov. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you know what I will do also because I I think this is very important. I will write a follow up blog, um, hopefully tomorrow, um, to kind of tie some of this together, and we'll also put that out on my website and we'll put it out on social media. Do you think that would help as well? Certainly it would. Okay. And and please don't forget that we have this show on the archives forever for repeated listening and circulation. And, well, you know, one other thing that I wanted to ask, um, uh, has, has the media been a friend to you with, with, uh, with these cases, either historically or currently? I will say yes, absolutely. Um, they have done a tremendous job of keeping these cases fresh in the mind of people. And I can't stress enough uh, how many times uh, after an event um, and we have a media push, uh, I will receive phone calls or emails from people saying, I've never told this to anybody before, but I want to share my story or tell you about an event that took place when I was seven years old. Um, so they're they have been an ally to us and certainly helped us out um, during these investigations. Well, well, that's that's very important that we we let people know that they can feel comfortable about about that as well. Um, Mary, Mary or April, do you have some parting thoughts that you'd like to convey or something um, of particular importance you want to leave our listening audience with? Uh, I think I just want to say to to everyone out there, um, if there's anything you know, if there's anything you've heard, even if you think it isn't significant, please call the tip line or use the email, and I know it will be investigated. Sometimes the littlest things could turn into a big thing, so just please, anyone, call in anything you might think is important. Right, and it it doesn't have to be confined to being a Connecticut resident. You could have, you know, it, it could be anything, right? That absolutely, um, and and probably I, I'm I'm sure the same goes for all of you in in, in that thought. And I want to say, if you feel as if in the future that something there is something significant that that comes along that you can share publicly. Um, you have my assurance that you can come on to my show again to to give an update, any of you. Okay, so you have an open invitation for that as well. Um, Thank you very much. And, oh, my pleasure, Delilah. What, uh, what would what would you uh, what what's your impression? I know that you you've worked with uh, a lot of other radio shows and cold ca- cold case squads. Um, I think this is a pretty dedicated group, don't you? Absolutely, and you know, I'm just totally impressed with the information that we've been able to bring to the listeners today on these cases. And you know, hopefully, the the key that unlocks the lock will come in as a step, and you know, there can be some resolution to these cases, no matter how old they are. It's been done before. Yes, it has, and it. And I'll just say, if anyone wants to anonymously or whatever, send any information to me uh, at DonnaGore.com, Lady Justice, we can also pass on that information as well. Right, Delilah? Sure. Yeah, so we can do that. So what we will do then, um, please, Dan, please, April, Mary, Bill, um, Janelle, everybody, please do keep in touch with me. Don't be shy just because this episode of uh, Shattered Lights is now coming to a close. I hope this is opening the door for us and that you will keep in in contact with us, okay, because you're now part of our Shattered Lights family, and I want to stay in touch with you. So I wish you all the best. I'm, I'm confident that 
positive things will happen in the future. And um, we'll just say good evening for now and until we talk again soon in the future, okay? Thank you very much, Donna and Delilah. I really appreciate that. I know the squad does. I know April and Mary appreciate the uh, time that you have given us to uh, send this message out to your listeners. Well, that's fine. Just just take it and, and use it to your heart's desire. <laughs> okay, good night, and have a good weekend, and, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.